While researching this case and listening to other podcasts tell the story, I found that there were some incorrect details regarding the kidnap and murder of Jessica Ridgway. I have spent the last two weeks meticulously searching and cross-referencing the details surrounding the case. I have watched the entire sentencing hearing on the case against Austin Sig, listening to the entire 17-minute 911 phone call, and have combed through the affidavit and search warrant available online. I'm not saying that my details are 100% correct, but based on the information available to me, I have been able to piece together the specific events surrounding the life and tragic death of 10-year-old Jessica Ridgway. I do want to give a disclaimer that this episode is very graphic. I normally say that about all of my episodes, but while researching this case, I even felt nauseous at times and had to take breaks. I usually have a high tolerance, but this case really stuck with me, so I caution you to use discretion going forward. Welcome to Modern Murders. I'm your host, Ariel. This is episode four, The Rape and Murder of Jessica Ridgway. This is my first episode in 2020, so Happy New Year, everyone. And I do sound a little bit different. I have been sick for the last week, and I'm still technically sick, but I finally feel like I'm able to get up and run errands and get back to my normal self. So I may sound a little bit nasally, but I am getting better. And honestly, I should have gotten the flu shot. I didn't. You think that being a biologist, I would know better, but I've just been so busy last year that I just didn't find the time to get it. So this is a warning to you guys too, um, or a PSA, get the flu shot. Okay, so let's get into this case. Austin Reed Sig lived with his mom in Westminster, Colorado. He was born on January 17, 1995, to Mindy and Robert. Mindy and Robert later separated when Austin was a few years old and his dad later remarried and lived in a mansion nearby where Austin grew up. It was never described what Austin's relationship was with his father after his parents' separation, but I did notice that he did go on some vacations with both Mindy and Robert even after they had separated, so I think that they were cordial, but probably didn't spend a whole lot of time with each other. During his primary years of school, he first attended Maranatha Christian Center, and then he transferred to Witt Elementary School. Austin struggled with reading and writing in his adolescent years. Teachers said that he struggled to concentrate in school, and they suggested that his parents get him evaluated for a learning disability. It was later observed by pediatricians that Austin may have attention deficit disorder, or ADD as I'll later refer to. Austin was attending Wayne Carl Middle School in 2008 when his mother Mindy found child pornography in Austin's computer. This type of pornography would escalate to graphic and violent porn as he got older. Austin had an anxiety disorder, which pediatricians thought the impulses and the addiction to porn stemmed from. He was prescribed medication for his anxiety, but I'm not sure if Austin was actually medicated or took the medication that was prescribed. His stepmom, Susie, sought treatment for him at a faith-based counseling center in 2008 to 2009. Austin later said about the counseling that it didn't help his addiction and that it only got worse as time went on. Austin never sought help again after his first counseling treatment, 
and his unusual fetishes and interests fell by the wayside when it came to adult supervision. His father was advised by counselors to monitor Austin's television and computer activity, but little was actually done to keep track of what content he was consuming. It has been reported that Austin's father, Robert, had a lengthy criminal record, which includes burglary, fraud, domestic violence, and driving under the influence. I couldn't find any charges relating Robert to abusing children, but he did abuse his spouses multiple times and had a restraining order taken out on him by his common-law wife. Besides the fights between Austin's parents in his early years, the remainder of Austin's home life was loving and calm. Austin had friends and a normal social life. His classmates described him as intelligent and a little odd, He was involved in the Jeffco Concert Choir and was sometimes teased because he had a high-pitched voice for his age. He had other interests, including World of Warcraft, Call of Duty, a small decorative sword and knife collection, but it was his open fascination with death that made Austin weird to some of his peers. He met his girlfriend at Warehouse 180, which is a place for Christian teens to socialize, And him and his girlfriend dated from late middle school and all the way throughout high school without any red flags. She later described him as a really sweet guy and would never think that he would hurt anyone or do anything malicious. He would usually spend the night once out of the week at his girlfriend's house. His mother, Mindy, later said that on average, he would sleep at Mindy's house three nights a week, and where he would stay the other nights was honestly a mystery to her. Other students described Austin as a nice kid that talked to everyone in the hallways. Even if you were walking to class by yourself, Austin would offer up to walk with you. He shared a room with his younger brother, and on Austin's side of the room, he had katanas, a kimono, and other Japanese decorations on the wall, alongside an Abbey Road Beatles poster. Later on, he developed an interest in becoming a mortician. His mom would joke about his fascination with death with friends and neighbors. Throughout his time at Stanley Lake High School, Austin learned at a different pace than other students due to his ADD. He was able to get his GED, but he dropped out of the 11th grade to apply at Warren Tech. While at Warren Tech, he received a second place award for a Health Occupations Students of America competition in a crime scene investigation category. It seemed like he not only liked the morbid subject, but he excelled in it. Austin started attending Arapahoe Community College while he was still a teen and took classes which, according to his brother, taught Austin how to commit murder and get away with it. I want you to remember this quote by his brother because it'll come back up later on in the story. This next detail is a little strange to me. So Austin used to practice zip-tying his mother. She later said she thought it was for a school and crime scene investigation, but I just find that really creepy to have your kid coming up to you and saying, hey mom, can I zip-tie you for school? I don't normally like to place blame on parents because I'm not one myself, but in this case, I find the parents' lack of action to be a little bit negligent in his upbringing. I do give credit to them for taking him to pediatricians and seeking treatment for him, but I feel like they stopped paying close attention on him after his first treatment. 
They knew he had some issues very early on as a child, and as Austin got older, his interests became morbid, and although his parents may not have liked the material he was studying, they certainly didn't stop him from doing so. The fact that he wasn't home four nights out of the week seems to be fairly laxed parenting, and his level of freedom and independence let Austin be secretive with his comings and goings. I don't know if stricter parenting would have solved this issue early on. I personally don't think so. But I also don't think it would have led to anything worse than what Austin would eventually become and do. His first attempt at committing a crime was on May 28, 2012, when he was just 17 years old. Austin tried to use a homemade chloroform rag to knock out a 22-year-old female jogger in Westminster Park near Kettner Lake, but fortunately she was able to escape by fighting him off and running away, and she went to authorities shortly after. Austin later described how he had parked his car next to a police surveillance, but I'm not sure if this was a camera or a van. He walked around the park where he noticed the jogger the first time. He then hid in the bushes and waited for her to come around jogging a second time, and that's when he attacked her. Whatever police surveillance was referred to was not helpful in identifying a perpetrator in this attack. She described him to police as a 20 to 25-year-old, 5-foot, 7-inch white male with an average build and brown hair. This identification profile wasn't much to go on, so police were able to lift a DNA profile retrieved from her shirt and entered it into the FBI CODIS database. CODIS stands for Combined DNA Index System. After this failed attack, Austin went to the U.S. Virgin Islands with Mindy and Robert for a vacation, but it was not believed that he committed any crimes while on vacation. Austin typically showed no signs of odd behavior or any signs of distress after his attack on the jogger and ultimately Jessica Ridgway's murder. So I do want to talk a little bit about Jessica. I don't want to leave her out of this because I want to pay much attention to the victims more than the perpetrators themselves. Jessica was born on January 23, 2002 in Westminster, Colorado, to Sarah Ridgway and Jeremiah Bryant. Her parents later divorced and were going through a custody battle when she stayed with her mom, grandmother, and aunt while her dad was living in Independence, Missouri. She was in the fifth grade at Witt Elementary School and was on the Pee Wee Cheerleading Squad, sometimes practicing at the local Stanley High School. Jessica was so independent that it seemed like she was 10 going on 20. She was responsible and took care of her dog and did most things without being asked a second time. She was the fourth musketeer in the household. The 10-year-old had plans to be a zombie lifeguard for Halloween that 2012 year. And I just want to point out how funny is this idea to go with a zombie lifeguard. I love the irony, and I feel this shows the goofy and funny nature that Jessica had about her. She brightened up everyone's life and was always smiling with a little gap between her two front teeth. Her favorite color was purple, and this was made obvious by her purple-rimmed glasses that she wore every day. She had a black-and-white dog, which looks like a Jack Russell Terrier, 
And she made a home video of her trying to teach her dog to sit, and it was just so adorable when I watched it. Jessica Ridgway was last seen by her mom on Friday morning, October 5th, 2012. She was walking towards Chelsea Park to meet with a friend and walk to school. That morning was like any other, with Jessica starting her day with a granola bar and an orange and watching some TV while getting ready. Earlier that morning, Jessica had phoned her friend's dad to arrange to meet at the park near his house and walk to school together. Her mom, Sarah, had just ended a work shift and came home at 7.30 a.m. to help her daughter get ready for school. Jessica would have been cared for during the night by either her grandmother or aunt, since all three lived in the same house. Everyone's work schedule ensured that there was always an adult present to care for Jessica day and night. It was snowing that day, so when she left that morning for school, Jessica was wearing blue jeans, a puffy black jacket with pink lining, and black boots with little fluffy palms attached to them. Jessica also had her purple prescription eyeglasses that she needed to wear to see, and a black and pink backpack with a Disney Channel character from the show Victorious. I've personally never seen the show, but it seems like it's like a live-action TV show, so she had one of the characters on her backpack that made it very distinctive. Unfortunately, this was the last time that her mother would see her daughter's face because Jessica never made it to school that day. Jessica walked to school alone because she was late to meet up with her friend, and he and his dad decided to leave without her that day, possibly thinking that her mom would drive her to school since she was running behind. The boy had waited until 10 minutes before school started, and his dad drove him that day so he could make it on time. It isn't known when Jessica got to the park, but she must have only been minutes away. The friend's house was a quarter mile from hers, so it would have been too far to turn back and go home to get a ride from her mom, so Jessica decided to walk the other quarter mile alone. A few weeks prior, there were reports in Colorado of a white van trying to lure girls into the car with the promise of candy, so that community was on high alert, and parents talked to their kids about stranger danger. Jessica was a really smart girl, and walking to school with a friend would have been safer for her, but I feel like this small community was mostly safe, and she would have been comfortable walking this route with no issues. She was taken while walking the half-mile route to school and passing a parked gold Jeep Cherokee with a young man hiding inside waiting to grab her. Jessica's absence was not noticed until later that day because her mother was working a late shift the night before and was catching up on sleep throughout the day. When Sarah awoke in the evening at 4 p.m., she realized that Jessica had not come home. It was noted that Jessica's mom put her phone on silent that day because she was receiving a lot of phone calls that were not important, and she said that it wasn't normally like her to do this, but she was really tired and needed to catch up on sleep that day. When she checked her voicemails on her cell phone, she was alarmed to find out that police had called at about 10 a.m. to inform her that Jessica did not make it to school. So Sarah immediately phoned back the police to report her missing. Sarah knew immediately that something was wrong because Jessica would never miss school. Sarah rushed over to the neighbor's house to ask if they have seen Jessica, and then she went to the school to look for her there. She looked all along the route, and she looked all around the campus, but she couldn't find Jessica. She had a deep sinking feeling that Jessica was in danger, but didn't know if Jessica had an accident or was taken. 
The missing posters about Jessica described that she had blue eyes, she was 4 foot 10 inches, had blonde hair, and weighed 80 pounds. Since Jessica was such a smart and safe girl, she would have never gotten into the car with someone she didn't know. So it was automatically assumed that she was abducted forcefully by someone she didn't know, or she got into the car with someone she knew very well. Police started looking within the family to see if any of them had anything to do with her kidnapping. Jessica's father was quickly ruled out as a suspect since he had an alibi in Missouri at the time of her disappearance. Coincidentally, there was a court hearing that day that he attended regarding the custody of Jessica after lapsing on child support payments. Jessica's home and surrounding properties were thoroughly searched to find clues of where she may be. On October 6th, there was a massive search by police, family members, and the public on her normal half-mile route. Search dogs and thermal sensors were used to search the surrounding areas of her neighborhood. After the search came up empty, an amber alert was sent out with Jessica's photo and description. Police and the community placed purple ribbons around the school and her route to keep the public's attention of her disappearance. This brazen crime shook the small and modest community of 13,000 residents. Parents now kept a closer eye on their children's whereabouts and started looking to find a suspect close to home. On October 7th, her backpack, which contained her glasses, boots, and urine-soaked clothes, and water bottle with the words, life is good, was found on a sidewalk in the town of Superior, six miles from her home. Someone had found the backpack and noticed the name Jessica Ridgeway written on the water bottle and posted online for someone to retrieve the belongings. Even though the Amber Alert was sent out and still active, the person who found the backpack hadn't made the connection to the crime and was just trying to find the rightful owner. Fortunately, someone on the internet saw this and notified police of the found backpack. DNA was collected from the backpack and a full profile of a suspect was entered into the CODIS database and it was matched to the DNA collected off the t-shirt in an assault and attempted abduction earlier that year. This was from that jogger. So police had collected several hundreds of DNA from several communities to test against this DNA because they had the profile, they just didn't know whose it was because there was nobody in the system that matched it. But this would be a slow process because they had close to 700 DNA to analyze. The backpack was a good sign that Jessica may be still out there with her kidnapper, but it was an alarming discovery since she needed her glasses to see. Also, I feel like the urine-soaked clothes would have been a huge indicator that Jessica was in trouble. Police directed their search to the town of Superior to find a lead to where Jessica may be. On October 10th, a tip led officers nine miles away from Jessica's home to the town of Arvada. Human remains in a black trash bag that was deemed not intact were found in Patridge Park, and Jessica's family waited in agony to get word if this was her or not. This park was an old mining area with a lot of remaining structures like sheds and cabins for locals to explore. The surrounding areas of the park had new housing developments popping up around it, and a major freeway going through it. The remains were covered with a white blanket while police continued the search in the area for more evidence. 
This was a very gruesome crime scene, and it shocked officers when they came upon a child-sized torso with no limbs or head. I can't imagine the trauma that officers dealt with after this case and the amount of officers who had to take time off to deal with this tragedy. Police were able to identify the torso based on DNA matching Jessica's, and her family was notified. The medical examiner later noticed that the body had been cleaned, the internal organs had been removed, and that there was a foreign object found inside the body, which I will explain later in Austin's confession interview. A DNA profile of a suspect was lifted from Jessica's remains, but I'm not sure what the source of this DNA was. I don't know if it was semen, blood, saliva, sweat. At this time, police had not ruled out Jessica's mom, Sarah, and when her ex-husband and Jessica's father, Bryant, was questioned about Sarah as being a possible suspect, his response was, quote, I don't see how any parent could do something like that to their child, end quote. During a 38-minute public statement, Sarah expressed her understanding and cooperation in police investigating and eliminating her as a suspect. On October 17th, police canvassed the town of where Mindy Sig resided. She told police that she lived in the house with her two sons, Austin and his brother, who I'm not going to name in this podcast because he wasn't named in the affidavit. However, I do know his name and I don't feel like he should be because he had nothing to do with this crime. Police had no cause to search Mindy's home at that time, but wrote down the details Mindy had provided them. Although officers didn't get information from Mindy, the neighborhood was on high alert, and this search shook up a lot of the residents who found Austin as odd and disturbed. On October 19th, a tip by one of Mindy's neighbors and friend led detective to Austin Sig. The tip described his obsession with death and a silver cross he wore around his neck. Police questioned him and even searched his home, but couldn't find enough evidence to charge him. They also searched his father's house, which was the mansion in a town of Parker, southeast of Denver. His dad owned a media company and was able to purchase a large estate that overlooked the town, so it was believed that Austin could have found a spot to hide or bury the rest of Jessica's remains, possessions, or hide evidence. Police obtained a DNA sample of Austin via buccal swab to compare with the sample they had on Jessica's water bottle, her remains, and the jogger's t-shirt. Austin felt the pressure by police presence and started becoming unhinged. On October 22nd, Austin felt sick and wobbly and told his friends at Arapahoe College that he didn't feel well. I'm not sure if Austin often slept in his mom's bed, but he certainly did the night before he called police to confess to the kidnap and the murder of Jessica Ridgway. The trauma from his actions may have affected him and his sleep that night. I really hope he had nightmares of what he did that night. He crawled into his mom's bed like a frightened child. I hope he still has those nightmares to this day, with no warm bed to crawl to in his cold prison cell. On October 23rd, he confessed to his mom, Mindy, that he murdered Jessica, but told her that he did not rape her. His mother initially made the 911 call to confess for him and tell the police that some of Jessica's remains were still in the house. 
The police dispatcher convinced Mindy to hand the phone to Austin so that she can talk directly with Austin to get more details about where the rest of Jessica's remains were and how he murdered her. Austin also confessed to the dispatcher that he had attacked a woman in Kettner Lake and had a speeding ticket. He told the dispatcher that some of Jessica's remains were still in the house in a crawl space. This crawl space was underneath the house, and there was also a marijuana plant growing in the crawl space. It was known that Austin smoked marijuana, so this was most likely his own personal plant. Austin's tone on the call started out very matter-of-fact and calm, but later it escalated to frustration when the dispatcher kept asking questions about the murder and the motive. I have seen some people online comment on the dispatcher being annoying, but I think what she was trying to do is to keep Austin talking, hoping to get more information out of him and his mom, but also to keep them cooperative and in communication so the police know where they are in the house and what the situation would be when they arrive. The dispatcher stayed on the phone with Austin and his mom until the police arrived, but Austin and his mom were both physically sick and having a panic attack. Detectives read Austin his Miranda rights in front of Mindy, and she waved them so that Austin could make a full statement. There was no resistance or struggle from Austin, and he went with police willingly. I do want to play a clip of the 911 call. I want you to notice that Austin's voice is high-pitched, like I referenced to before, and I also want you to note his tone, his demeanor, his frustration, and just keep that in mind and realizing this is a 17-year-old boy. Has Austin been diagnosed with any mental health um, mental health issues? Does he see a counselor or take any medication? He saw a counselor um, years ago so for um, porn. Okay. And we were talking, and we think that might have led to it, but I don't know. And what? I don't know. And Austin told me he's going to, he's taking like classes at community college. Yeah. Okay. What kind of classes is he taking? <laughs> to be a mortician. He wants to be a mortician. Hello. Is this Austin? Yes, it is. Hi, Austin. This is Molly at the Westminster Police Department. Hi. Can you tell me a little bit about what's going on right now or how you're feeling or, or how did this come about? Uh, I, I, I don't exactly get why you're asking these questions. I murdered Jessica Richway. Okay. There is, I have proof that I did it. I, there is no other question. You just have to send a squad car something down here and right. I will answer all the questions that you want to ask. Okay. Or anyone wants to ask of me as soon as you just you gotta get down here. Okay. Austin, I have a police officer that's gonna come over to your house, okay? Can you tell me what part of the house that her remains are in? Underneath the house in a crawl space. Okay, did you know Jessica before this? No, I did not. Are you going to school anywhere? We're at the Hope Community College. And you're 17? Yeah. Okay. Have you committed any crimes like this before? Uh, this before? Um, I mean, are, do you have a criminal history of any sort? The only other thing that I 
have done that before this was the Kettner Lake incident where the woman got attacked. That was me as well. And other than that, the only criminal history I have is a speeding ticket. Okay. I did edit this recording quite a bit, so the first part of the recording of the 911 call is actually Mindy, and the second part is Austin. They kind of go back and forth talking to the police dispatcher, but I really just wanted you to hear the really important parts of the 911 call, because it is 17 minutes long and I wanted to condense it into only a couple minutes. But I did find it interesting that Mindy laughed when she told the dispatcher that he wanted to be a mortician. I feel like that's kind of shows her guilt or denial, naivety in the subject. I also wanted you to note that Austin sounds very shaken up and they both are crying because they're scared. But when Austin goes to the police station afterward to make a confession, he sounds a little bit more relaxed. He's not as shooken up and he's a little bit more calm. And as he's telling investigators how he murdered and what happened after to Jessica Ridgway, he was like eating and having a soda. And the court later brings this up, the fact that he was able to eat while talking about the gruesome details that he performed. So according to the affidavit, the initial DNA retrieved from Austin was tested and the results came back negative. I find this so amazing because other reports of this have said that the results came back positive. So the fact that they came back negative really shook me when I saw that. Austin's DNA did not match the DNA collected from Jessica's backpack, her body, or the jogger. Other podcasts have incorrectly reported on this detail, so I wanted to point this out specifically because I think this is a very important part of the case. One article by the Denver Post says that the DNA was a lab technician error, and they later retested a second sample of Austin's DNA, which came back with a positive match. I want to take a moment to reflect back on something Austin's brother said about him. He said that because of the classes Austin was taking, he was learning to commit the perfect crime. I think this has some truth to it because Austin probably went the extra mile to make sure his DNA wasn't on Jessica's remains or backpack. And he also admitted to police during his confession that he wore gloves when handling Jessica's items and remains, and he washed her body twice to wash away evidence. I personally don't think that Austin would have gotten away with this crime had he not confessed. I think he would have made a mistake eventually, like he did with the other DNA, but with the DNA not matching the first time to the crime scenes, it would have casted doubt in any criminal case against him had he not confessed. One thing that you can't learn in school is how to deal with the mental and emotional trauma from committing a gruesome crime like this. I feel like even the cruelest of psychopaths and serial killers still deal with the trauma right after a murder, even if they seem calm about it when recalling their actions, it could just be shock. While Austin was being interrogated at the police station, officers searching the house found the black trash bags in the crawl space resembling the same bags used to wrap Jessica's torso that were found in the park. Detectives did not open the bags, but when they picked them up, they assumed that based on the weight and the shape of what was in the bags that they contained her head and her appendages. 
During the interview, Austin admitted to murdering Jessica, but he did not admit to raping her. He told the detectives that he went out hunting that day and had not known or seen Jessica previously. He was, however, familiar with the area and knew the routes that kids would take to get to Witt Elementary School since he had gone there himself as a kid. It was no coincidence that he chose this area to go looking for a victim and probably knew areas that may have been more hidden from neighborhood witnesses. This could have been anyone's little girl that day, but since Jessica was late to school, she was probably only one of very few kids, if not the only kid still walking to school. He explained how he grabbed her quickly, put her in his car, and drove off while she was walking on the sidewalk. According to Austin, he knew from the beginning that he would murder Jessica, but he told her that she would be safe and that she would see her mom again to keep her calm. He bound her hands and feet with plastic ties and drove around for a half hour making random turns before eventually driving to his mom's house. He practiced zip tying his mom. I just can't imagine how his mom feels now and knowing that he was ultimately practicing on her to eventually get better at kidnapping a little girl. So after he was driving around the neighborhood, he pulled into the garage at his mom's house and shut the garage door. There at the house, he tortured Jessica by cutting off bits of her hair while watching a TV show he put on. He then had her change into his t-shirt and shorts because her clothes were soaked in her urine. During his confession, Austin goes into more detail on how he killed Jessica. He tried to strangle her with zip ties, but was unsuccessful because the ties cut into his hands. He manually strangled her until she was barely alive, and when he noticed there was a little bit of life left in her, he drowned her in the bathtub with scorching hot water. This makes me sick thinking of this, but as you can imagine, based on her remains, the brutality is not over yet. He dismembered her body in the bathroom using an electric saw, utility knife, and razor blades. He labeled the bags of certain body parts while flushing parts of her dismembered hands and feet down the toilet. He initially put the black trash bags containing her remains in the pool shed in the backyard. This was a small pool shed in the back corner of the yard to the left. The neighborhood houses were really close together, so I'm guessing the neighbors weren't too happy to know that a little girl's remains were just on the other side of their fence. The next day, Austin drove around in his Jeep to dispose of her items. He threw her backpack in plain sight in Superior to throw off police and then threw her jacket in a random trash can. The jacket was never retrieved, but the backpack was later retrieved by somebody walking by. Because police were using cadaver search dogs in his neighborhood, Austin felt he needed to dispose of Jessica's torso. I don't think Austin was done with his sick fantasy because instead of keeping her torso intact when he dumped it, he decided to pretend to be a medical examiner and remove her organs from her chest and abdomen in his home and then washing the body making sure there was no more evidence. He claims that he flushed the organs down the toilet bit by bit. A search of the house found the remaining body parts and cut hair from Jessica in the crawl space that Austin described earlier to the police dispatcher. Austin admitted putting a small, hand-carved wooden cross pendant on Jessica's body, but during the autopsy of her body, the cross was found inside it. Austin also admitted to etching three designs on the wooden cross before placing it inside her. 
Police had initially released a photo of the wooden cross to the public to gather leads, but it did not inform the public how or why this cross with the markings was significant. That's why it piqued officers' attention when the neighbor described Austin wearing a cross around his neck. Although it wasn't wooden and it was silver, the fact that he had these items and his unusual hobbies just kind of stuck out. Austin was able to confirm those pieces of information to the police. I really don't want to say where, but I feel it is important to know how sick this guy was and that the cross was not an attempt at remorse, but rather a disgusting use of the cross to try to throw off police by thinking the perpetrator was a religious zealot. The one-inch wooden cross was found in her vaginal cavity. Since he had removed her organs, it wasn't like this was the only place he could have placed the cross. If there was still some type of remorse for taking her life, he could have placed it where her heart would have been. Not that this would have made it any less disturbing. I just think it's notable that he chose to put a holy symbol in a spot where he degraded her sexually and stole her innocence and then dumped her body in a trash bag. This guy had no respect for her before or after her death. Police asked him why he tried to attack the female jogger earlier that year, and he responded that he would have done the same thing to her that he ended up doing to Jessica. He also planned to dump the jogger's body in some sulfur pits in the Colorado mountains. In his own words, he was fulfilling a sexual fantasy, and this sexual fantasy had been growing for a long time. Austin even admitted to going out before Jessica's abduction and murder, to look for little girls but never had the ability to act on his urges at those times. He admitted to all the crimes against him on Jessica and the female jogger he previously attacked, resulting in 17 counts, 11 of them pertaining to the crime against Jessica and the others pertaining to the female jogger. Because of his age, he was initially sent to a juvenile facility, but these accommodations and resources ran short. Even though Austin was a minor at the time of his crimes, he was later charged as an adult and transferred to an adult prison in Jefferson County. Because he was still a minor, he was put into a special housing unit for the first 52 days in jail, where he was isolated from the general population and escorted by a deputy. Once he turns 18, he can be released to the general population, and he was. He was represented by defense attorney Ryan Lower and his team. Surprisingly, Austin pled not guilty to the now 15 charges later read to him in court. Two of these original 17 charges were later dropped because they were considered the same charges and similar in nature. I'm not sure if this was a plan by his lawyers to plead not guilty, but either way, the attempt was unsuccessful and Austin later changed his plea to guilty in October 2013, right before his trial started. He was not offered a guilty plea and wanted to spare his family and Jessica's family the gruesome details of the crime. I want to start out by saying that the defense team did a really good job given Austin's situation of confessing to the murder. And in his trial, the defense was trying to get him the most lenient sentence as possible. And I feel that they did their research and brought up every single event in his life that could have mitigated circumstances and place less blame on him for his actions. I know that it can be harder to defend than to prosecute, but I feel that both sides really did well and the ultimate trial and sentencing was fair. His defense attorney tried to paint a troubled start to Austin's life by admitting to the court that his mother Mindy suffered a fall three months prior to her pregnancy with Austin and had also inhaled paint fumes in her last trimester. 
The defense doesn't say if the inhaled paint fumes were recreational or if this could have been while painting the inside of a house, but it was noticed that Mindy called her doctors and was concerned for her baby after this incident. So I'm going to assume that it was accidental and that maybe she was painting the nursery. During Austin's delivery, a vacuum was used to help get him out of the birth canal, leaving a temporary misshapen head. And this is very common when using a vacuum. The defense argument was that the paint fume inhalation and the vacuum on the head led to intestinal complications, which resulted in multiple surgeries and procedures throughout Austin's childhood, and that the deformities in the shape of his head during childbirth could mitigate his culpability in his crimes. Looking at picture of Austin, his head size and shape seems pretty normal, and even if it was slightly larger than it would be normally, it would have been from genetics and not childbirth. I'm not really sure where this angle was going with the defense because both don't seem to point to an extremely troubled youth or head trauma commonly seen in violent killers. I also find it peculiar that the defense team said significant intestinal surgery and needing a colostomy bag during the trial. They didn't say that the surgery was a colostomy, so I'm not sure if the bag is intuitive or if a colostomy bag can be used in a variety of other ostomy surgeries. I was born with intestinal complications when I was a child and had multiple surgeries before I was a toddler. I know what happened in each surgery and I knew what they were called, so I find the lack of detail by the defense to be possibly a sign that they're dramatizing these events. There were more hospital visits of an injury related to his head, but there was no significant damage. The defense team also brought up Austin's ADD and anxiety disorder to point out that this affects the frontal lobe, which is responsible for impulses and planning. This is the only part of the defense that I think is somewhat decent, but it still doesn't describe how someone can meticulously plan murder and then clean up a crime scene if it's an impulse. If this was a different case with different circumstances, then I can see that angle working, but Austin did not act on an impulse, in my opinion. He acted on a desire and knew what he was going to do before he did it. He had even attempted it before and failed and still tried again. Although Austin was 18 at the time of his sentencing, and he was charged as an adult, his minor status still made him ineligible for the death penalty. A 2005 Supreme Court decision from case Ropper v. Simmons made it unconstitutional to impose a death penalty on anyone under the age of 18, and this ultimately spared Austin from capital punishment. On November 19, 2013, Austin was sentenced to life in prison. Austin's sentencing concluded that he would spend his entire life in prison with an 86-year sentence on top of his life sentence. This means that after his minimum of 40 years served of his life sentence, he's eligible for parole, but that 86-year sentence will start concurrently. So once he's done his 40 years, he's got to start his 86. Anna Salter, a psychologist, noticed that Austin showed signs of a sadistic necrophiliac with psychopathic traits, but he wasn't truly psychotic. Salter did not formally examine Austin, but assessed him based on what she observed and the details of the crime and confession tapes, and testified her conclusion in court during his sentencing hearing. And she was a really big part of the sentencing hearing. I would say that she spent almost two full days testifying on Austin's psychology. During her testimony, Dr. Salter explained how remorse for crimes happen before the perpetrator is caught, and that Austin did not show signs of remorse until police were closing in on him. 
this is because Austin spent like close to three weeks not being discovered. And then once he was discovered, he freaked out and started showing remorse. She is alluding to the conclusion that Austin was not remorseful for his actions, but rather that he was getting caught. She noticed that on reviewing video surveillance from Austin's neighbor, that he dropped off his brother at Stanley High School and came back home waiting around 50 minutes before leaving the house again. This is significant because this time frame shows that Austin was targeting children walking to elementary school. According to the school schedule in that area, the high school starts the earliest, middle school starts second, and the elementary school starts last. Salter points out the brutal nature Austin has when he decides to keep Jessica's skull and takes it out and looks at it because he is fascinated with it. During the trial, a letter was read by Jefferson County District Court Chief Judge Stephen Mussinger. This was quoted from Austin during the interrogation, and the judge just repeated what Austin had said, quoting him, I don't know about society because I've never really been that great with it, but I know that personally, I am a monster. There's no better word to describe what I've done than evil. Throughout the trial, Austin sat emotionless and with a blank stare at the ground, never looking up. But it wasn't until the victim impact statement that he started crying and showing some shred of human emotion. I hope these tears were for Jessica and that he felt deep remorse for what he had done. I hope he thinks about what he did to her every single day in his tiny and cold cell. I can continue to berate Austin for the monster that he is, but I'm sure a lot of people share the same level of disgust for him that I do, and I truly think that Austin feels that way about himself, and I hope he does. Jessica's mom, Sarah, did not give Austin the satisfaction of knowing how much he has damaged Jessica's family. Instead, she told Austin that after she left the courtroom that day, she would never remember his name and focus on Jessica's legacy. To Jessica's family, she will be 10 years old forever now in their minds. A year after her death, Chelsea Park, which was the park that she had walked to that day, was renamed in her honor. The Jessica Ridgeway Memorial Park structures are purple to signify her favorite color and dragonflies to signify her free spirit. A memorial rock and bench was placed in the park where her remains were found so that people can go there and reflect on her legacy. Jessica will be truly missed forever and my heart goes out to her family and I'm getting a little emotional saying this because I just can't imagine what they're going through and it still has not been that much time that it's passed and I just hope that they're doing well and that they're healing from this. In 2014, Austin was transferred to another prison out of Colorado for his safety and the location was not disclosed to the public. I would like to assume that he's getting in jail similar to what he did to Jessica. I hope that they are not treating him nicely. I don't wish harm on him, but I kind of do. It's really hard in a, in a case like this to have sympathy or even mercy for somebody that did something so heinous and horrific to somebody's child. So that's the case of uh, Jessica Ridgway, and I really hope that this doesn't dampen your new year. Um, it really kind of screwed me up, but I will be um, working on new episodes to come. And if you want to see any of the sources that were used for this research, which were quite a lot, to be honest, um, I will post those on my blog with the transcript for this episode. And I just want to thank everyone who's been supporting me through this podcast. Um, yeah, thank you. 